This message, uh, the costly gospel, I know it might seem a little contradictory to some of you who would say, well, wouldn't it be more accurate to say the free gospel? Because to say it's costly means that you would have to pay something to get the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about here. So just as a clarification, I'm not saying that you have to do some great deed to receive the gospel and the substance of the gospel. What I am saying is that the gospel, when received, costs you everything. If it is going to be the good news in your life that God designed it to be, then it must extract out of you everything that stands in the way of it becoming the full good news within your life. And so this isn't something you have to earn. This is a cost that comes in knowing Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to explain that in a greater degree. And I know that might not sound like the best invitation to Jesus Christ. It's like there's someone here and you brought them here and you're like, oh, I just can't wait for them to hear the gospel clearly this morning. And Eric whips out the costly side first. It's like, that's going to scare everyone off. Eric, bad strategy. Could you, could you get them in and then begin to acquaint them with this? This is good news. What I'm going to introduce you to is so absolutely extraordinary. And I make no excuses for it. It costs you your life. If you want to discover Jesus Christ, then you cannot hold on to a scrap of who you are. And by the way, that isn't bad news. That's the good news, because the problem is you. Now, we don't like that, because that sounds like an indictment, and it is. We are in rebellion against the Most High God, and we don't know it. We don't realize that we have a disposition which is against our God, and we claim a throne in our life. We sit glued to it, and we say, I want my life on my terms. And then we get Jesus introduced to us, and it's like, well, you know what? I like the benefit of Jesus, And so can I take Jesus and somehow better my life with all the good things that he could bring? I mean, he could bring some peace and some joy because I'm really, you know, miserable right now in life. And I could use some of that. I also like this nice feature that comes with Jesus that he can get me out of hell. You know, so can I take a little peace, a a little joy, and a little no hell in the future? And if I could get Jesus on my terms, I like this gospel. That isn't the gospel. The gospel comes with the full package. That is, you can have all that Jesus is. But there's a little caveat. And he gets all that you are. That's the gospel. Now, I know, like I said, this isn't the best strategy for winning people to Jesus Christ. However, I'm just introducing you to it. I'm going to go through it. And I'm not trying to be a salesman here. I'm going to give it to you the way it is. And by the way, the reason I smile so much in my life is because of this message. I'm not miserable because of it. I am the happiest man I know because of it. In fact, if we were to have a competition on planet Earth of the happiest man alive, I think I could be in the Olympics. I do. And it's not because my life is easy. I have a very challenging life. Anyone who's up close and personal with my life knows that my life gets hit in a spiritual way, more than most people on earth. However, that doesn't diminish the glow, the radiance of soul. If you want peace and joy, I know where you can get it. If you want soul satisfaction, I know where you can get it. But it comes through a very narrow channel. It says there is a broad way, 
And everyone wants to walk that way. It's an easier way. And then there's this little narrow channel. And narrow in scripture means a way of compression, a way of difficulty. And few are those who find it. Yeah? Because few are those who want to find that way. It's like, I don't see that way. Uh, This is the way that everyone else is walking. I'm going to go this way. But there's this little narrow channel that, you know, heads off in this direction. And if you're willing to look Jesus square in the face and say, you created me. You know what I'm here on earth for. I trust you. I trust that you're the God of the universe. And if you require something of me, who am I to withhold? I want to know your way. That's what I'm going to introduce you to. And this is good news. So the costly gospel. In Acts, we see this unfolding drama of Paul. It's interesting because Paul really isn't even in the four Gospels, this story of Jesus Christ, this climactic finish to the Old Covenant. We see Jesus fulfill the entire Old Covenant and then die, and a new covenant is born in his blood. And then the book of Acts kicks off. The purchase of the cross is realized because the purchase of the cross is more than just forgiveness of sin. I know for some of you that that's all it's been. It's like, what? What are you talking about? It's more than that. Oh, it's so much more than that. The new covenant in the blood of Jesus purchased something. More than just forgiveness, it purchased the life of God imparted to men and women on earth. And Acts begins to demonstrate that. In the second chapter of Acts, suddenly God comes to earth and takes hold of men. Flames of fire literally on their heads. These same men that cowered before all the the possibilities of what might happen to them if they followed Jesus. Suddenly these very men are walking the streets of Jerusalem, the very city in which Jesus Christ died, proclaiming the good news. Peter stands up in front of thousands and proclaims. The same guy that was cowering in front of a little girl. If you find a cowardice in your soul towards Christianity... Maybe there's something more that God wants to put inside of you. I shouldn't say it that way. There is something more that God wants to put inside of you, and it's himself. And so we see this journey where now this new character, Paul, begins to emerge. In the book of Acts, I mean, for the most part, I mean, we see a lot of Paul. In fact, the entire New Testament has a lot of Paul in it. But what we see is uh, Paul actually is told, even by the church of God, even warned by the Spirit, do not go to Jerusalem. But he knows That God wants him in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he needs to testify of the living God. But when he goes there, I mean, all hell breaks loose on this poor guy. But he stands and he testifies in Jerusalem and he makes it out alive, which is an incredible story in and of itself in Acts. It's not what I'm going to talk about today, though. And the night following the Lord, and the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. And so I'm going to skip forward three chapters. And what we have is Paul is a prisoner uh, of the Roman government. And the way he even got out of uh, Jerusalem alive is he, because he was a Roman citizen. Basically, he was, he was appealing to that fact. And he's, uh, he's been in bonds now for uh, quite some time at least two years, and when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves. This is speaking of Agrippa and Festus, uh, two uh, very powerful leaders in uh, Rome. They talked between themselves, saying, this man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Paul has a calling on his life, and that is to testify in Rome. He knows he is supposed to stand before Caesar. And this statement is quite telling. 
He could have been set at liberty. He's done nothing wrong. He could have been set at liberty. So can you. You could say the same thing about your life. You could be set at liberty if you had not followed the path of Jesus Christ. This could go a lot easier for you, people. There's a broad road. Yes, it leads to death. But there is a calling upon your life. And when you follow that calling, when you heed it, this statement will be spoken over you too. That didn't have to happen to them. If they just hadn't chosen to follow that narrow way, I bet that wouldn't have happened. They're probably right. It probably wouldn't have happened to you. But there is something higher happening in your life than what would merely be the natural outflow of a human life. There is a supernatural work taking place within you. And you say, I appeal to Caesar. Because you know you are to head to Rome. Well, who in their right mind would ever want to do that? A man born of the Spirit of God who knows the calling that is upon his life. And it won't be called Rome to you. It might be something very different. But as God begins to take hold of his men and his women, he begins to shape the Rome calling within us. And it's to go square into the heart of hell and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. This this isn't attractive to the natural man. This is attractive to the spiritual man. Every one of us that wants a reason to live. I remember the statement I said, I think I quoted it a few uh, weeks back. If by the age of 30 you don't have something worth dying for, then you don't have anything worth living for. I don't know if, you know, 30, why it has to be 30. I don't know who came up with it, but it's a good line. In other words, we all need something worth dying for. Paul knew he was going to die. That was a done deal. He didn't care about that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. There's no downside here. He was free from the fear of death. All he cared about was Jesus Christ and his glory. I'm called to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. So Paul could have skipped out on a lot of difficulties. The guy's life was rather challenging. He could have skipped out on all of them. He could have lived for himself. Sure, he would have ended up, you know, completely separated from God for all of eternity. Hey, but, you know, he could have lived this life. He did live this life. He lived it better than any of us. But he was constrained by the Spirit of God. I appeal to Caesar. The winds of the fair havens. I almost called this message the winds of the fair havens, but I pictured it going online as the winds of the fair havens and everyone's skipping over it. So I decided to call it the costly gospel. But the winds of the fair havens is a really good title, okay? We have Paul in a boat. He is assigned, there's a certain centurion of Rome that is basically assigned to bring him to Rome to stand before Caesar. And so they have to, you know, it's quite a journey. And there's quite a journey by boat. And they're trying to get to Crete. And they have, they pass through a place called the Fair Havens. And hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens. Nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. And Paul said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. I know I'm going to say this again. This is the wrong way to introduce people to Christianity. Sirs, uh, men and women, I'd like to forewarn you that I perceive this voyage of Christianity that you are now setting off on will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Who's in? This is where it starts. Through the the winds of the fair havens, we must go. 
The gospel calls us forth. It beckons us onward. We could just say, look, try me. I'm innocent. I don't deserve any of this. I want to go back to my normal life. Remember all those times the students here at Ellerslie are reading through Reese Howell's intercessor. And Reese Howell's, there was a control of the spirit that he'd given himself to. And whatever God wanted, God could do. And there were moments when Reese would wish he could go back. And he could somehow get out of that close watch of the spirit. And he could just live like other men. There will be those moments when you're passing through the fair havens when you will wonder what it would be like to have just said, why in the world would I have to say I appeal to Caesar? Why did I need to do that? You're compelled forward. The stripping of the spirit. This ship that Paul is on, I would like to liken it to our lives as Christians. The ship is all you are. If you are a tradesman or a guy who is a, you know, captain of a, a ship, you make your money by bringing cargo from one place to another. This is your livelihood. This is what you live for. If someone were to ask you what you did, you'd say, you know, I work on a, on a boat or I work, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a captain of a ship. In other words, this is your identity. This is who you are. But now we have the Spirit of God entering in. And Paul could be almost like a symbol of Christ on the boat, Christ in us. And it's like, why do we have to go through this fair havens? You know, you could even wonder, would this storm have even hit this boat if Paul wasn't in the middle of it? You see, all hell seems to be arrayed and set to bring down the church of Jesus Christ. So there's easier places to live than in the very uh, eye of the storm. You know, and where it's headed. I mean, who wants to be there? If you just choose, as we always say, to stay in the wilderness instead of progressing to the promised land, just stay in the wilderness. There's no enemies in the wilderness. They don't want to live there either. They hang out in the land of Canaan, in the land of promise, and God says, go in and take it. 31 hostile empires there. Who in their right mind wants to go there? I'd rather stay in the misery of the wilderness, most of us say. The adventure, if you want to see the greatness of your God, he's in the promised land. You obey, you step forward. The fair havens await us all. The stripping of the Spirit. When we come to Jesus Christ, there is a process that he must take us through. And I want you to realize that this process is not done because he loves to see his children writhe in pain. He doesn't take us through this process because he has it in for us. He doesn't uh, have a secret delight in seeing us wriggle. He loves us. He loves us, and that is why he takes us through the winds of the fair havens. Because as long as we maintain control of our life, and as long as we are merely a a ship captain, and we do our life and we go about our life the way that everyone else goes about their life, our life is not useful to the kingdom of heaven, and it never finds the fruitfulness and the fullness and the satisfaction that God came to give us in and through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we must go through the stripping of the Spirit. First, what he hits at are the non-essentials. And ironically, this is very difficult. But non-essentials don't feel like non-essentials to us. They feel extremely essential. But he touches on them one by one. And he says, I need you to let that go. Would you be willing? Because I have a calling for you and I have a purpose for you. But those winds are blowing. You see, this ship of Paul's suddenly is encompassed by a massive storm. And all is looking bleak. 
And so the first thing that goes are the non-essentials. But not long, not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eroclidon. And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. This wind that is blowing against your life brings you to a place of lightening the ship. And what you are lightening feels like, oh, I can't believe I have to give this up. I can't believe I have to let go of this. But in hindsight, when you look back, this was nothing. What God starts us with are the non-essentials. Some of you that are Ellerslie students have walked through this. In fact, now you're scared of where it goes next. That's just one. You thought the non-essentials were challenging. But I want you to realize this is for the glory of God. This is good news. I know it's not feeling like it right now, but this is good news. Because these non-essentials, these things that we are holding, are hindering us from becoming what God intends us to be. The second thing God touches are the replaceables. These are things that go beyond non-essentials. This is more than just a picture on the wall in the captain's quarters that we're like, oh, I always loved that picture. And now I have to let go of that picture? Oh, I know. Well, what am I going to look at? Just a hole. There's a hole in the wall behind it. I don't like that view. Now God begins to touch on things that are very important to our livelihood. They are replaceable, but they're very, very important to us. And they hit us at a deeper level. It's a more intimate level. And the third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. I mean, this is the tackling. This is no small thing on this ship. But you know what? When we get done with this storm, we can go back and buy more. You see, there's still a reasoning in your life that, yes, you're giving it up, sort of like fasting. You're giving it up, but food's going to come back. But God is pressing a point, and he's saying this is different than fasting. This is surrendering. When you let go of something, you don't get it back. And so God begins to touch on the replaceables. The thing is, we're thinking that he's going to replace it with something else like it. Instead, what he's going to replace it with is himself. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am, and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. What gall this guy has. He's standing in the midst of this tempestuous storm, and he says, Be of good cheer. Nothing's going to happen to you. They're like, well, what? who are you to be saying that? My God told me. You're safe. I'm supposed to stand before Caesar. Nothing can touch you. That's an incredible reality that you begin to enter into, is to realize that even though it would seem all hell has broken loose on your life, that all hell can't touch you. Because in the whole is the Spirit of Christ. There is something in your midst that even though it seems like all is falling apart around you, it can't get to you. You are actually safe, and God in the midst of the storm whispers to you, be of good cheer, for I am with you. And in that impossible situation, you find yourself actually learning. 
and being trained by the Spirit of God to not look at your natural circumstances, but to believe your God. And this is the training. This is the stripping that God must take us through. Because if we weren't in this storm, we wouldn't learn the all-important truth that the natural realm around us may bark, may roar, may crash, but it is not the definition of our reality. Our God is. And what his word says is true. And it doesn't matter if there's a wave that is about to crash against you. If Jesus says walk on water, you keep focused on Jesus and that wave cannot harm you. It doesn't matter if Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. If Jesus said this sickness will not end in death, that's the truth for you. You do not buckle under because, because Lazarus dies. It doesn't matter what the natural says. You stand firm and you say, be of good cheer because he is the resurrection and the life. The lifeboat. When I was walking through this very stripping of the spirit back in college... God was taking away the non-essentials. He was dealing with the replaceables. I left college. I was doing a double major in biology and chemistry. I was going to be a doctor. I had it all figured out. I was doing really well. I was going to even use it for the glory of God. I was going to be a doctor on the mission field. Why in the world does that need to be stripped? That's a good thing. Instead, God had to go after everything in my life. He took everything out of the way. And I was brought to the lowest point when I I went to a missionary training school in Texas, right smack in the middle of a school year. And I mean, it was so hard for me to leave. And I remember that previous summer, I have an uncle who's very well off. And I always esteemed my uncle's lifestyle. I mean, he's a Christian, he was wealthy. He had a yacht. He had uh, season tickets to everything that I would want to be a part of. He had multiple houses on the ocean in these beautiful locations. And he could like either visit his own houses or he could rent them out. He could do whatever he wanted. He had the luxury of wealth. And he said to me, Eric, if this doctor thing doesn't work out for you, would you consider going into business with me? I have a future. Even if this doctor thing doesn't work out, this whole missionary doctor thing, I, I, could, I could do that. I could do that. And I could do that for the glory of God too because then I could give more to you know, the poor. Um, and so I had this lifeboat in my life that I didn't even recognize. I didn't even see it was there until God brought me through the removal of the non-essentials and the removal of the replaceables. And so he's taking me out of those things. And I could replace them. I was planning on going back to Baylor University after missionary school. So I had a replaceable already in there. In other words, he took away Whitworth College, and I was going to then go back to Baylor. It was a replaceable that he was taking away. And it was hurting. This was very difficult for me. Because all of my family tree are very astute academically. And so you stay in college, you go through the course so that everyone can look at you and go, you did it right. Now, Eric is bucking the system. And I'm thinking, I'm not doing it. God's doing this to me. They didn't understand that at all. (laughs) Eric, you're choosing to do it. Okay, so I'm bucking the system and I'm creating waves and I'm not intending to. The problem was I was the oldest cousin in college. So all the other cousins are looking at Eric and all the other, uh, you know, aunts and uncles are saying, oh, great. 
he's setting a bad precedent. This new generation is going to be soured because of this terrible precedent. And so a lot of weight was falling. I mean, I felt every inch of it. And so I'm choosing to follow God as painful as it was. And I get to missionary school down in Texas. And I've told the students this, and I don't remember if I mentioned it in church or not, but I, I still had some stripping uh, that needed to take place in my life. I just didn't know. You don't know that you have more stripping left. In fact, as far as you're concerned, you're stripped down to the bone. You know, when the non-essentials are removed. I mean, how much more is there? I've given up everything. But I brought down with me a football, a basketball, a frisbee. I brought down with me my entire weight set. <laughs> you see, my identity was squarely in my athletics. Okay, so if I was going to give up my academics and look like an idiot, I was not going to give up my athletics because I had tone to my physique. I needed to maintain this tone. I needed to maintain whatever I could. You don't even think, you're not thinking about it consciously. You're just taking all your weight set with you. And that's heavy stuff. Talk about weights that easily beset us. Well, I had them with me on the way down to uh, missionary school. I remember one of the first things I said when I got there is uh, to one of the leaders, I was like, yeah, uh, where do you want me to set up my weight set? He's looking at me like, what? You have a weight set with you? I'm like, yeah, yeah, other guys could use it too. So where do you want it? And so I ended up in the back, you know, where all the weeds are grown up. And he's like, you can stick it back there. It's behind the whole dormitory. I'm like, this is terrible back here. It's like, yeah, you can put it there. Uh, So, uh, I mean, talk about an embarrassing thing to look back on. But there was a process that God was bringing me through. He was stripping me so that he could rebuild me. He had to remove Eric so that he could clearly plant Jesus Christ in the center of my existence and establish it. And when I first got down to missionary school, it was the first Sunday. I remember I was looking around at my missionary uh, training school uh, cohorts, and I had some weird people in the midst. Uh, you know, I was used to a very sane, stable environment, you know, where people were, you know, at least of a certain ilk. You know, they, they were all weird at college too, but they had all had come from a similar background. They were all sort of a similar uh, economic strata. But now we had, you know, this guy was an ex-drug dealer. This guy was a gang leader. This guy was just at, fresh out of a mental ward. And it was a little awkward. I didn't know what to do with this because they were different than me. And so I was starting to look back at my uncle's situation going, you know what, if this doesn't work out, I could always do that. If this doesn't work out, I always have that lifeboat. I want you to touch, allow the Spirit of God to touch your life right now and to define the lifeboat. The escape strategy. Because some of you have come radically to Jesus Christ, but you still subconsciously have something hanging out there that is your lifeboat. If this fails, at least I know I can do this. It's the old fall back on thing. And so when I was that first Sunday, I went to a church, and this is precisely what the pastor spoke on. He spoke on the lifeboat. It was that message. That was his entire message. I don't know if he called it the lifeboat, but it was, what's your lifeboat? Are you willing to cut it? Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. 
And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. You're getting in a lifeboat. Unless you stay, unless you stay in the ship, you will die. The only way to be saved is to do it God's way. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. That's a tough moment because it isn't looking too good right now. And your prospects of staying in the boat don't look very positive. And at least as long as you have the lifeboat, there's that option. And God says, before you see my clear plan and how this is all going to unfold, you have to trust me. And you need to cut off that lifeboat. Nope. This is the winds of the fair havens, and I know I'm doing a terrible job of inviting anyone into the kingdom of heaven today. I'm not done. It gets worse. (laughs) Taking hold the promise, the last supper. Okay, now the reason I, I call it this Let me read this to you, and I'll I'll go back to that. Wherefore, I pray you. This is immediately following. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat. This is Paul speaking. These guys have been, you know, not eating uh, for a long time here. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health. For there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. There is a promise that has been given, and that is that not one man will die. Do you trust it? God has spoken. You will make it to Rome. Now, I know that that lifeboat looks very appealing, but when God has a commission on your life, that lifeboat is an impediment because it is diminishing your confidence in God. By allowing a lifeboat to remain, you are putting faith that instead of being directed at the promise of God in your life, you are aiming it partly towards this lifeboat. And it is a diminishing effect upon your all-out complete confidence that my God is God, and he is able to perform that which he promises, and he is promised, and he cannot lie. There's a diminishment. And Paul calls it in Hebrews the anchor of our soul. The anchor of our soul is the fact that God is promised and he cannot lie. You take that as your anchor. That is what establishes you. That lifeboat is a hindrance. And so this next one, what did I call it? Taking hold the promise. You know, communion is exactly that. It is taking hold the promise. It is cutting all lifeboats. I know most of you don't look at communion that way. The the students at Ellerslie understand it. It's a covenant meal. And it is basically saying, God... I take claim to your body and your blood. That's my salvation. It's my life. I become your body here on earth. And in taking claim on your purchase on the cross and all that you are, there's an exchange. Always in covenant, there's an exchange. All his body and his blood, all that our God is for all that we are. There's an exchange, and this is the important process that begins to take place in your Christian walk, is this exchange begins to enunciate itself. That God is bringing you to the end of yourself, and he's saying, will you let go? Because you're beginning to realize it's more than the non-essentials. Wait a minute, it's more than the replaceables. Whoa, God, where are we going with this? The lifeboat? The lifeboat? And God's saying, I have a purpose for you. Will you take my promises and cut everything else? 
Will you trust me right now? I'm taking you somewhere. I will get you to Rome. Do you trust that? Your calling is sure. You will be secure in my arms of grace. There is nothing the enemy will be able to do. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. I will bring you to the end. There is no abortion and there's no miscarriage in the kingdom of heaven. We are not going to lose the plan of God in our life. He doesn't start something and then abort it. He starts it and then completes it. This is our God and he has started something in you. Will you trust him to complete it? He has started the work. Let him carry it onward. So we say to our God, all I am for all of you. It's an exchange. We give up our life as we know it to get all that the God of the universe is. I don't know if you're starting to feel that. I know that when you focus just on what you're giving up, you can't see the good news. But I want you to realize that what you're giving up isn't that impressive. Your miserable life, this ship, for instance, that lifeboat, you know, that, that tackling, those non-essentials, you know, the picture in the captain's quarter, not that big of a deal. God has given you the kingdom of heaven. He has given you all that he is. And he's saying, but I ask for all that you are. And at this point in the fair havens, we are beginning to feel the weight of it. The fourth thing. And this is a tough one, because forsaking the cargo is the whole purpose. I mean, the cargo is the whole purpose of the ship. It's the whole life. It's everything that that ship was for. It's not to transport prisoners, by the way. That isn't the goal of the ship. The fact that Paul just happened to be on it was just more of a coincidence, wasn't it? The fact that the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus is inside of you. Is that a coincidence? God is doing something. You could say, this life is for my glory. This life is to accomplish great things. It's so that people would respect me. God, what are you doing? He says, all overboard. They have an entire wheat crop on this boat. And they have to let it go. So you think the non-essentials are difficult. You think the replaceables are difficult. You think that cutting the lifeboat is hard. But when he asks for the cargo and everything that you are, not just your hopes of what you could escape into, but everything that you are, everything that makes you you, your talents, your giftings, if I head in that direction, I could really do something great for God. And he says, would you throw that overboard for me? Would you trust me? This ship needs to become mine. Well, what are you going to do with it? Trust me. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. So they ate, this is why I was saying the Last Supper, it's very similar. They ate the communion meal, the kingdom meal, the, uh, the dipnon, the king's dipnon is what it's called. It's the meal, the feast. And that's what Jesus says, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. And it's a covenant meal where we take claim on the promise of God, on who he is. And he says, in exchange for all you are, the cargo. We weren't expecting this. When we started out, we expected just to get to Rome. We didn't expect the winds of the fair havens. This wasn't part of the bargain. 
God, if we had known what you were taking us into, maybe we wouldn't have come. That's why I'm saying to you up front, you know what you're getting yourself into. And I want you to realize there is no downside to this. I know it feels like a downside, but that's the flesh speaking. There is a part of you that is against the kingdom of heaven. And there is a part of you that God is awakening and for that the spirit within you. There is a spirit part which esteems God and says, I want to get to Rome. I want to stand before Caesar and bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. There's a part of you that's awakening and it's stirring. There's a fire there, but there's another voice that oftentimes is louder because you've been listening to it your entire life. And that's the one that says, no, I don't even want to give up the non-essentials. I can't give up non-essentials for Jesus Christ. He's not that valuable to me. Jesus Christ is worth everything. He's worth a billion boats. Let's add to that. He's worth a billion, a billion, a billion, a billion boats. His blood is precious, and it has purchased all the boats. And he's saying, will you allow me to do with my boats what I see fit? Because I have a purpose for my saints. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the four parts stuck fast and remained unmovable. You guys remember my message on immovable? The fore part stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves, and the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. God's going to get you there. And the foremost part of who you are, the part that God wants to keep out of this, is unmovable. It's untouchable. It will hold fast. But there's a, the rest of you needs to be shed away. It needs to be removed out of the picture. So that Jesus Christ gets his due. The treasure and the pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all he has. And buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. Do you recognize how good the kingdom of heaven is? Do you recognize what Jesus Christ is, who he is? Because if you do, you will sell all you have to go and buy that field. You'd sell all. The second piece, it's likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the principle of the kingdom. You sell all to get the treasure. And I want you to realize that Jesus Christ is the first one who modeled this. He's talking about the pattern of the kingdom and he walked in it. He sold everything. He gave up all that he was for us. We are a treasure. We are a pearl. And he gave up everything to get it. And he says, will you follow in my path to get the treasure, which is him? This is how you access the kingdom treasure. You sell everything, not just the non-essentials, not just the replaceables. It's not just cutting the lifeboat. And it's not just throwing over the cargo. It's allowing your ship to be completely broken. 
so that you can reach the destination of your life, which is being transformed into the image of the Son. To be shaped into the likeness of the Most High God so that this world would see a tribute to Him and His fame and His renown would spread throughout the earth. Poured out like ointment. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye, we, you, whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me, you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. In the Greek, the word spikenard is translated pistikos spikenard. And the word pistikos, which is a word for faith, is not translated. So all you see is the word spikenard. It's a precious ointment, very expensive. In fact, this box, in another uh, version of it in the Gospels, is described as being worth a year's wages. A year's wages. You want to talk about a lifeboat? Something that you can turn to in a really down time, a down economy, I at least always know I have a box of spikenard. And what does this woman do? She takes everything that she would have faith in. This word pastikos means an object of faith. The spikenard, the object of her faith and her confidence. Where are you putting your hope and your confidence? Is it in, is it in Jesus Christ? Is it squarely in Jesus Christ? Or do you have a confidence in anything else? Because if you have a confidence in anything else, it's time to search the pantry of your life and bring it to where Jesus is at and to break it open on your Lord. He is deserving of everything. He has given everything for you. Give everything in return. I'd like to walk you through the good news. You just saw the effects of the good news. And I know it might not seem very inviting, but I am going to finish it like a puzzle with the good news. Because being stripped of the Spirit does not leave a man barren and dying on the side of a road as if he was robbed. It doesn't mean that God is just kicking you around saying, that was fun, and then you're bruised and bloodied and you know, spend the rest of your life in some closet you know, mourning the fact that you gave your life to Jesus Christ. There has never been a Christian who surrendered their life genuinely to Jesus Christ that ever regretted the fact that they did so. That's not how it works. When you give up your handful of worthless pebbles and you get the kingdom of heaven in return, you don't complain about the fact that you gave up worthless pebbles because you recognize how valueless they were in contrast with what you receive. But it's so hard to see that in the meantime. When God is asking for your life, he says, trust it to me. It is so hard to let go. Life is a very feisty thing. 
When you see someone laying on a table in a hospital and you see them fighting for life, it doesn't go away quickly. And your life is feisty. And it doesn't want to let go of its hold on you. But this is where life begins. God takes you to a cross. And he says, let it finish the work. When you're on a cross, you don't get down until every part of you is dead. But what follows the cross? Resurrection life. Who who doesn't want that? This is good. But it has to go through the narrow channel of a cross which is splintery. And it isn't comfortable. And I understand that. But just like having a baby isn't comfortable, and I know I shouldn't be talking on that subject, (laughs) the results of the travail is life and life abundant. When I give the gospel, I, I always use an illustration of a man in prison. And so I always picture this little small cell. And there's bars on it so you can see out. You know you're in prison. And most people don't realize they're in prison. That's why when the gospel comes, it awakens a man to realize he's enslaved. And he can't get out. That's the prevenient work of grace upon the soul to awaken a man to realize he's stuck. Hey, hey, I need to get out of here. You can try anything in all of life to get out and you can't. Willpower, wit, wisdom, hard work. You know, take one of those little spoons and try and, you know, dig a hole for yourself out. Nothing. There is no device that can free you. You are stuck in your sin. And the penalty of your sin, which has marred your spiritual disposition so thoroughly that you cannot participate with God. You cannot interact with God in a healthy way. You cannot go where he is and find salvation from him. There is no hope. You're stuck. I know you're saying, this is good news. Yes, the good news follows this. The reason the good news is so good is to recognize what it's saving us from. We are stuck in the prison cell of sin. And over the prison cell, it says guilty, condemned, eternal separation from God, hell, judged. There is no option here. You try all you can to be a good person. I don't know if you've ever tried this. Those of you that have lived in impurity... Just try outside of God to say, you know what? I'm going to be pure like God. Every one of my thoughts is going to be pure. I'm going to live a different way now. Try it. I challenge you. You'll fail. Because the human life outside of Jesus Christ and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus cannot perform righteousness. Our righteousness, our version of attempting, is as filthy rags to God. Because it doesn't match up. It doesn't work. We are imprisoned, and we don't have a hope. Well, wait, wait a minute. And we do, because God so loved us that he sent forth his son. The enemy comes in with a club, and he has a rightful access to our life. We've submitted to the kingdom of darkness. We live in the kingdom of darkness, and he takes full, he exacts out of us everything he wants, and he ultimately damns our soul to hell. He hates us. He hates God and we were created in his image. And so he comes in with his club and he beats us up every day of our life. And there's a furthering. The wages of sin is death. The end result of it. What you gain isn't the fruit of life. You gain the fruit of death. It's misery. It calcifies your soul. It turns you inward. It it makes you miserable in the end. Yeah, there's a season when, when sin feels great. 
And then that all dissipates. It goes into nothingness, and all you have is eternal torment. And Jesus Christ strides into the scene. And when the enemy comes in with his club to finish you off, suddenly your strong man bears his chest, and he takes the blow. He took the hit that was rightfully to destroy you. The enemy had a right to you. And Jesus came in and took that hit for you. An amazing reality. And he was turned into a bloody pulp. He was actually killed. And as a result of what Christ has done in taking the penalty that was rightfully ours over the prison cell, it says justified, forgiven, set free. But most Christians have stopped the gospel right there. They're still in a prison cell. How many Christians do you know that are still in a prison cell, yet they're justified? It's like, I'm forgiven. You're still in a prison cell. Is that what God intended? Well, you know, it's, it's at least a prison cell where I know I'll eventually get out of it when I go to heaven. But we live in the prison cell of sin. What we don't realize is that Jesus Christ did so much more on that cross than just, set us, than just forgive us of our sin. He didn't just deal with the penalty of sin. He dealt with the problem of sin and everything that leads you to participate and to yield and to submit to sin in your life. Check the prison door. It's unlocked. And when you tap on that door, suddenly you realize it opens. And you can walk out and breathe fresh air of liberty. You do not need to live under the thumb of sin anymore. Such is the penalty of sin. And it's not just the problem of sin, as extraordinary as that is. It gets better. Outside of that prison cell are emissaries from the king. And they say to you, the king beckons you into his presence to live where he lives. What? I, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm a rebel. <laughs> I mean, just a few minutes ago, literally just a few minutes ago, I was sitting on the throne of my life in defiance against God. I was marred in sin. Well, you're washed clean by his blood. And he invites you. He loves you. He invites you to live where he lives. And so you're thinking, if you're going to come to the place of the king to live in his kingdom, I'm sure there are outskirts in his kingdom. You know where the poor people live? There's some shanties out there. Where do you deserve to live? If you're going to hear the great news that you could actually be invited into the king's kingdom, we've got some background music here. If you find out that good news, then wouldn't you expect to be in the background, to be in the shanty? But instead, God says, no, to the very dwelling place of the king, to the throne room. You are invited into the very throne room of the king of kings. Not just the penalty of sin, not just the problem with sin, but an invitation into his presence to live where he lives. Do you ever remember the story of uh, John F. Kennedy's son, John Jr. There's this uh, war council taking place in the Oval Office, and John F. Kennedy is sitting behind the, the president's desk, and these other key members of state and other nations are sitting in the room, and underneath the desk is John Jr. playing with a truck. That's you! All the war council of heaven is in session, and you've been invited into the very decision-making headquarters. And you're invited because it's more than just the penalty of sin. It's more than just the problem of sin. And it's more than just an invitation into his presence. It's the adoption as children. You are adopted 
as sons and daughters of the Most High, I want you to attempt to swallow that reality for a second. Because a child of the king receives all the benefits of the kingdom. It's theirs as an inheritance. And all the the empathy, all the affinity, all the affection of that king is directed towards you as a child, not just as a subject in the kingdom. That is amazing. That is extraordinary. That is bewildering. And it is yours for the taking. Not just the penalty, not just the problem, not just the invitation into his presence, not just the adoption as children, but it's the commission. You have the privilege, as the king would say it, I have a job for you. For me? You want me to work for you? Yes. You know where you came from? Remember that prison cell? I have a whole lot more that need to hear of me. Are you willing to go forth? Absolutely. You gave up everything for me. I would do anything for you. I want you to understand, though, that I'm going to have to send you in as a sheep among wolves. And they will kill you. They will hate you, just as they hated me. I don't care. I get to represent your name. I get to stand for you. The one who set me free, the one who gave me life, You would choose me to represent you? Absolutely. Whatever the cost, I don't care. Not just the penalty. Not just the problem with sin. Not just the invitation into his presence. Not just the adoption of his children in his kingdom. And not just the commission. This is the capstone. What I'm about to share with you is the whole thing wrapped together in one amazing thing known as the good news. This is extraordinary. This is what Christ came to do for us. And it all comes and it climaxes into this jewel. Just as we're getting ready to be sent out and we're counting the cost and we're realizing this is going to mean the winds of the fair havens and we're recognizing that to get to Rome, everything has to be lost. And just as we're walking through that process and just as our, sh- as our boat is heading into that shoreline and crashing into pieces, God says... Oh, and one more thing. What I've called you to do is impossible. You know that, don't you? I do. I don't care. I'll do it for you. He says, well, I'm a God who wins, and I don't like to lose. So, I'm going with you. And if you would yield your body to me, I will inhabit you. And I will take a little lamb like you, And I will go, and I will destroy all the wolves, bears, and lions. And you will be more than a conqueror. And the spirit that raised me from the dead will dwell in you. And the things I did, you will do greater things in this earth. For I am going with you. And Christ in you will be the hope of God being seen accurately on earth once again. This is the gospel. It is more than just the removal of a penalty. It is more than just the dealing with the problem of sin. It is more than an invitation into the very presence of God. It is more than an adoption as children. It is more than a commission. It is the God of the universe coming and dwelling within men and women and taking these hands and making them his hands. Taking these feet and making them his feet to go into all the world. Taking this heart of stone and making it a soft heart. A heart that beats with the very burdens of God. Taking this mind that was sinful and enslaved 
enslaved and making it think all the things that are noble, pure, right, and good. It's taking this mouth and having it proclaim to all the heavenlies to witness that our God is good and he is victorious. And anyone who would repent and turn from their wicked ways and turn unto him and believe will be saved. This is our privilege. Yes, it will cost you everything. But I would make the appeal to you that everything is not enough to give up to get what you get in return. When you give up everything and God has stripped you and you've gone through the fair havens, you will look back and say, take me through 10,000 times over if necessary because having you is my great reward. And that's what you get through the fair havens. You may be stripped, yes, but you are given something so much more than what is taken away. You, your rebellion, your defiance, your sinfulness is taken away. And what do you get back? Him in all his fullness, all his grandeur and his glory. And I appeal to you, those of you that are looking at the fair havens and measuring it right now, I want you to realize that that narrow way that few are they who find it is the way of life, triumph, and peace. You want everything that is actually stirring within you that you desire. You desire that life of meaning. You desire that life that is fully satisfied. There is a longing within you to be correct and to be the way a man or a woman ought to be. There's one way to get it, and that's Jesus Christ. He'll strip you, and then he'll bequeath to you the entirety of himself, and you will never lack. You will never lack. You will have a little jig that will start in your toe and move its way up your leg and it'll turn into a dance. You will have a song that will start in the depths of your soul and it will move up and usher forth to the point where you cannot keep it in. You will have a smile that will start pricking the edges of your your lips and it will turn and then suddenly it'll, it'll warm itself into a laugh. This is the kingdom of heaven at work within men and women. It transforms them into pictures of jubilance and triumph. The kings of the earth could take their stand. The rulers of this earth could conspire together. And you were unafraid. The mountains could crumble to the sea. Earth and heaven could peel away. And your feet are solid upon a rock. And you will not be moved. You will not fear evil tidings. Nothing will shake you. Who wouldn't want that? This is the appeal of the gospel. This is the gospel. Throughout all the ages and generations, this is the good news. You are lost and you have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. He is the way to the Father. He is the solution for everything that ails you. If you want Jesus, then take no more time pondering. Just go after him. He's waiting to be found. He's waiting to be asked. He's waiting to be beckoned forth to be your rescuer. He's already taken the blow for you. You reckon it as true for you. That was done for you. That's where it starts. And boy, it's good. Let's pray.